Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the New Books and Sports Podcast. This is Bob D'Angelo, and I'm a longtime sports journalist now working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today, we'll be speaking with Amy Bass, author of One Goal, a coach, a team, and the game that brought a divided town together. We hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast. Our guest today is Amy Bass, author of One Goal, a coach, a team, and the game that brought a divided town together. Amy, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Amy is director of the Honors Program and a professor of history at the College of New Rochelle in New York. She has written four books and focuses on sports and sports history from a cultural perspective. She earned her bachelor's degree from Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, then earned her master's and doctorate from Stony Brook University on Long Island. Amy, uh, talk a little bit about your background academically and personally and the previous books you've written. Sure. This is uh, this is my fourth book, One Goal. But in a lot of ways, it's my first book because it's my first attempt at narrative nonfiction. So sort of taking my years and years of writing about politics and sports and culture and putting it to work to tell a story in a different way. Um, my first book was about the Black Power protest at the Mexico City Olympic Games. It's called Not the Triumph, But the Struggle. And it was really my attempt to, to more firmly situate sport within a civil rights context. Uh, I followed that up with a collection of essays and then a book about W.E.B. Du Bois uh, called Those About Him Remained Silent. Um, but really, I, I increasingly was writing about sports and politics and culture in more popular venues, places like Slate and CNN Opinion. And so it, it was sort of a natural progression, I guess, of, of me as a writer to wind up working on a project like One Goal. When did you develop a um, love for writing for history and for the social sciences? I mean, you grew up in a family of journalists. Um, 
Was it something that you were born with or was it something that just grew on you? There's a lot of connection between loving reading and loving writing because I think you're appreciating, you know, the written word and the power of the written word. Um, I think you do it differently as a reader than you do as a writer, but I think you develop an ability to write uh, through reading. Um and I think that, you know, I'm the daughter of, of two journalists. So I grew up in a house full of books and I grew up in a house full of people who were writing. And, you know, journalism, you know, watching my parents and, and the way they, they used words um, to be persuasive and to make points uh, about, you know, big subjects in the world, it, it, was, it was something I had a lot of respect for. Um, but I, I sort of took a different route to becoming a writer. And it's interesting. I think that this new book, that it's with one goal that I'm finally willing to sort of use the label of writer, um, which sounds crazy, right? It's my fourth book. And yet, I think with this book more than the others, I, I really thought about the art of writing, the craft of writing. Um, and I enjoyed that uh, to a great degree. Because you did your undergraduate work at uh, Lewiston, Maine at Bates College, um, you had a unique perspective about the city. Many of us think of, when we think of Lewiston, we think about the Phantom Punch and the second Ali Liston boxing match, but uh, obviously there's much more to the city now. Uh, what kind of city was Lewiston and why did the Somali people gravitate toward it? Yeah, so I was an undergraduate at Bates College in Lewiston um, years before uh, the Somali migration uh, began to occur. So this working on this book was really sort of a second introduction uh, to Lewiston for me. Um, I was a very typical college student, so I was very narrowly focused on things that were the most important things in the world, um, my friends and my classes in that order. Um, so this was this was a return to Lewiston and, and really opened my eyes into the complexities of the history of this city. So yes, certainly the most famous sporting event before this soccer team was Ollie Liston and the Phantom Punch, which, which took place uh, at what is now the Androscoggin Colisee, the hockey arena. Um, you know, one of the center points of the city because it's very much a hockey town, uh, although now it's a hockey and soccer town. Um, but Lewiston was a mill city. It was very typical of other New England cities that emerged along rushing waters, along rivers. Lewiston is built on the banks of the Androscoggin, the Great Falls of the Androscoggin. And in the 19th century, uh, some Boston capitalists, some entrepreneurs, you know, headed north and started to figure out ways to harness the energy of the Great Falls of the Androscoggin. And so red brick factory buildings and a network of canals uh, began to sort of shape the city in a very particular direction, what became known as Spindle City. And it was very much an American immigration story because the workers for those factories um, were immigrants, but they didn't come through Ellis Island. They came largely from the north uh, via the Grand Trunk Railroad. So they were Quebecois. They were French-Canadian, uh, French-speaking migrants, factory workers who settled um, and created what became known as Petite Canada. Um, but as with everything else <laughs> in terms of manufacturing and, and making stuff, the bottom falls out of the New England textile industry. So the once thriving Lewiston mills begin to slow and then they begin to close and, and move elsewhere, which left Lewiston in a, in a really tough economic situation. Uh, it felt like the city's best days were, were in the rearview mirror. Um, 
So it was a place that had vacancy. It was a place that was, you know, hemorrhaging population as, as much of, you know, some of Maine was. Maine, Maine is tough in a lot of categories that you don't, you don't sort of want to be known for. It's, it's a very old state. The median age of Maine is quite old. Um, and it, it has, you know, it's young people going elsewhere to, to find opportunity. So Lewiston had a strategy. It, it put an economic strategy into place, the city administration, and they, they took over the Bates Mill, the largest of the mill complexes, and began to think about ways to, to strategize and stabilize. And it's this city that the Somalis begin to come to. And it's, you know, people might think, why, why Maine? It's so cold. It's so far north. It's so white. It's so Catholic. Um, but they were looking for space. They were looking for apartments that could accommodate large families with low rents and good schools and a safe community. And, and so in a lot of ways, it was the perfect place. One line in the book I really found particularly telling was the the old main saying that, that you quote in the book, which is, you're always from away. And the people from Somalia were from very far away. I mean, what kind of hurdles did they face when they came to the United States and to Lewiston in particular? I'm sure that language and culture were two of the major hurdles. Yeah, language and culture, I, I think, you know, that's very typical of an immigration story. I mean, one of the things that marks a refugee story as, as different, refugees are, are not mere immigrants. Um, you know, there's some 60 million refugees in the world, which is a, a very hard number to wrap your head around um, because of what, you know, immigration always has push factors and pull factors, what's pushing people out of where they are and what's pulling them to where they where they wind up. And the, the push factors of refugees are, are terrifying. Um, but one of the things that, that makes refugees a little bit different is that there's no going back. Um, the, you know, when you think about the French Canadians who, who come on the railroad uh, to, to work in Lewiston, that railroad went both ways. And for folks who are coming to the United States via these enormous refugee camps in Kenya, uh, like Dadaab, which is the largest of, of these refugee camps, they land and, uh, and there's no going back. You know, that's, that's the escape part. So in terms of challenges, the, the big challenges are keeping families safe and keeping families together. Um, because that's that was that was their one goal, um, you know, to get out and to to stay together. And the primacy of family is is overwhelmingly all encompassing and important. And then to negotiate America. I mean, this isn't a story of assimilation or Americanization. It really is a story of negotiation, which I think marks it as an interesting sort of twist on our immigration narrative, where you know, sort of stereotypically, we talk about melting pots. And here we're really not talking about a melting pot. We're talking about how to negotiate keeping culture, keeping religion, keeping food and tradition and clothing and family relationships together while still settling and laying roots in a new place. Yeah, and I think two battling stereotypes. Most Americans, as you point out in the book, got their initial, initial impressions of Somalis from the, the movie Black Hawk Down. Yeah, I mean it's it's there's Black Hawk Down, um, there's the pirate movie, um, you know there's a lot of stereotypes that are thrown around um, when we look at recent political moments with the current administration in the Oval Office, you know looking at travel bans of Muslim majority countries and and Somalia keep coming up over and over again, and I think you know that's one of the things about this book is that. 
so much fear and so much hatred and, and, you know, it's so much ignorance that's out there about folks who are fleeing the very things that, that people are saying they're afraid of. This is really what I would call fear-based ignorance. Um, and I think that, that one of the ways that we can get at that is to try to contextualize it and put this fear into a context. And in one goal, I try to put it into a soccer team. True, true. And I was surprised to learn in your book about the large presence of the Ku Klux Klan and the traces of the Confederacy in Maine. It seemed like the most unlikely place to have a Klan presence. Well, and that's earlier in the 20th century, and, and that's anti-French sentiment. So, you know, the, the French, the Francos that were living in Lewiston, and, you know, Lewiston, French is still very much present in Lewiston life. Um but the Francos, you know, they weren't they weren't allowed to speak French in school in public schools. They began to found parochial schools where they where their kids would be able to learn French. You know, they were punished for speaking French in school. You had signs in store windows saying "No French need apply," um, and that's what the Klan is marching against. It's an anti-Catholic, anti-French movement. So I think that you know we get, of course, the the amount of space that the Klan activity in the South and the you know the post-slavery hostility that sort of rises out of the reconstruction movement moment is is critical to to sort of the understanding of of hate crime and and the clan and what have you but there's a lot of clan in the northeast because there's a lot of racism in the northeast and and sometimes i think the north really sort of gets this free ticket it doesn't deserve because it's in many ways a, a much more codified and complicated kind of racism um you really have to want to find it uh, but I think that, you know, you, you have these kinds of racial tensions just simmering at the, the surface, under the surface of, of so many communities, and it takes very little to, to set it off, to boil over. Another fact that you point out is that the same people who objected to Somalis moving to Lewiston were overlooking the city's history of immigration, particularly from the French Canadians from Quebec who gravitated to the textile industry. It's It's almost like they forgot where they came from or why they came to Lewiston in the first place. Well, and, and, and they tell, you know, they tell stories that they see stories differently. So I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack in terms of a refugee community, um, you know, a black refugee community, a Muslim refugee community, uh, an African refugee community, uh, and the idea of, you know, what is assumed about them and the, and the stereotypes that, that run rampant in the early days of, of the Somali migration really help um, sort of promote that this is a different kind of immigration narrative. And I think that that's, you know, we can go back into the, the early 20th century and the late 19th century, and we see that all the time. I mean, we see it when certain immigrant groups, you know, look at the Chinese Exclusion Acts, right, in the 1880s, that this group of immigrants is different from our story. This group of immigrants doesn't fit in uh, to the American story. So I think we see that time and time again. You know, two major points. Um, you write about in the book about race relations in, in Lewiston, two things that occurred in late 2002 and 2003 when the, the mayor wrote his uh, maxed out letter. And then several months later when a white supremacist group staged a rally in Lewiston um, and there was some pushback. Can you talk about those two events? I, I don't think the white supremacists have what I think they wanted to have a rally. I think they had sort of a pathetic group 
Um, but it's, they, they called it a rally. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the mayor sort of went rogue um, and wrote an open letter to the Somali community. And it's a very familiar sort of us versus them line in which he said, you know, you guys are fine. We know you, uh, but no more. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and the Somalis, the Somali elders respond. They have a press conference downtown on Lisbon Street. And, you know, it was a turning point. And, and, I, and I talk about this in the book, sort of this ebb and flow of change, that, that you have these really painful moments and then you have a coming together and then you might have another pulling apart, painful pulling apart, and then you can have a coming together. And, and this was one of those things because what comes out of the mayor's letter and the, the reaction, you know, it, first of all, it exposed the division, right? The, the xenophobes felt free to say, yes, this is what I've been saying this whole time. So then you got to see who they were. But then you had a bigger swath of the community say, this isn't who we want to be. And you have this group come together, this giant rally called the Many in One, um, in which, you know, a couple thousand people gather together in the gymnasium at Bates College to say, all are welcome. This is who we want to be. Uh, and this is a counter to this white supremacy group. I'm not even going to name them because they can make their own headlines um, who, you know, sort of descended, said that, that they were going to descend upon Lewiston and, you know, support whiteness in Lewiston. Um, and the city administrators deal with them very skillfully. They won't let them have any space downtown. They sort of give them some space out by the highway. And very few of them show up. Um, I think their leader at that point is in jail. Um, and, and, you know, that's the beauty of the thing is that Lewiston was sort of, you know, you look at the headlines of the newspaper that morning, where they're sort of, you know, tense and anxious and primed for, you know, Nazis to descend upon the city in the wake of, in the wake of this. And, and what you actually get is several thousand people and senators and, you know, Muhammad Ali sends a letter um, with thousands of people saying, you know, we're going to figure this out and this is who we are and all are welcome. And, and we're not entirely sure what the path forward is going to be, but together we're going to figure that out. Yeah. And it seems like things are turning around, but then even after that in 2012, um, Lewiston mayor Robert McDonald told the BBC that he wished Somalis would just quote, leave their culture at the door, unquote. So, um, it's, it seems like it ebbs and flows. It does ebb and flow. And, and I think at that point, you know, you have folks who are more willing to directly respond. I mean, this is, you know, it's a mayor who's all over the map um, on these kinds of issues, not just issues of immigration and migration, but issues of welfare and poverty, um, which are issues that Lewiston has dealt with for decades and decades and decades. Um, but you're also talking about a Maine that's led by a governor like Paula Page, you know, who proudly says he was Donald Trump before Donald Trump was Donald Trump. Um, so I think that, you know, it's you have this context in which this is in which this is unfolding. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm always really cautious about making sort of positivist predictions about what's going to happen. But I I think Lewiston has has dealt with whatever comes up it deals with it and it doesn't always deal with it right. Um, but it deals with it and, and everyone sort of knows what the issues of the city are and, and what needs to be worked on. So one of the positives you do point out about Lewiston was the, was the soccer team. Uh, Lewiston was a, was a hockey mad area and it seemed like a very unlikely place to be a, you know, a crucible of excellence in soccer. 
Well, and it's still a hockey town. You know, they just won another championship. I think their dynasty, they have three in a row right now, but I, I think they're close to 30 titles if they haven't hit that by now. I think that the point of the point of soccer and the Somalis in Lewiston is that Lewiston didn't replace hockey with soccer. They're now a hockey and soccer town. And, you know, they're also really good at running and they have a great cheerleading squad that, um, you know, the and instead of the or, I think is really the important part that you don't stop being the city that you are just because there are some changes that are going on. And, and this soccer team is, is one of the things I think that really represents how to, how to create these paths forward, because it's a longtime head coach, Mike McGraw, who's in the saddle, Lewis and born and bred, but it's, a coach who's listening to the new players that are coming on and, and creating new strategies and reaching into the community to talk to their mentors and their youth coaches, these these folks in the Somali community who are these critical leaders um, and partnering with them and listening to them, hiring a Somali coach, Abdi Jabbar Hersey, who's, who's hired a couple of years ago, the first Somali coach hired by the high school, you know, then you, then you have someone, I mean, strategically, it's fantastic. You have someone yelling from the sidelines in Somali and Arabic. So the other teams have absolutely no idea what Lewiston is up to. Um, but it's also, I think, really important to, you know, that idea of together, um, is, is exemplified by this team and, and sort of the space that they create within the community for a coming together. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to stay together. There, there is still going to be pulling apart, but we know that that's what sport does. Sport is either bringing people together or pushing people apart. Um, and I think that that's when, you know, it, it gets interesting and it gets complicated. Um, sports are never entirely good or entirely bad. I, I think, you know, they're nuanced and we have to take them seriously and, and really, really unpack what, what's there. Yeah, Mike McGrath strikes me struck me as a uh, crusty old coach, but um, the thing that impressed me about him, and as you say, was that he was able to listen, he was able to adapt, he was able to fit the players into a program that became really successful. Yeah, and I think you know you look at a relationship like like Coach Mike McGraw, and then you look at someone in the community like Coach Abdullahi Abdi, who's the coach of the eighth grade team, the middle school team. He also in the summer coaches the the boy, the vers- the the uh, high school freshmen and sophomores, along with his son Abdi Jabbar. Um, you know, you, you're looking at you're looking at partnerships that are created. These these two guys who are coming at soccer, you know, Abdullahi Abdi coming from Somalia, and and his sons playing for McGraw, and yet, you know, being the guy who's on speed dial when, when McGraw is trying to figure something out, um, who is ever present at the games and the sidelines and has the utmost respect from everyone, um, you know, really is the coach of everyone, which one of the Somali leaders, uh, says about coach a, um, I think that, you know, those kinds of partnerships on the field, on the sideline, in the community, um, can really, again, sort of just create this space for people to see what it's like to be working together. I mean, it had to be daunting for McGraw, who'd been there for a long time, because he had to adapt in radical ways. He had to be aware of, you know, for example, the Muslim holidays, the prayer sessions, and the fasting, which I really thought was interesting because it usually took place before the games. This had to be very difficult for him. How did he, how did he deal with it? Well, and I, you know, honestly, I think I think one of the unsung heroes of the book um, is the athletic director, Jason Fuller, 
who partners with some community members to, you know, think about, you're talking about some kids who haven't really ever played organized sports and you got to get a physical and your parents have to sign your permission forms. And when is Ramadan this year? And, and, you know, those early years when it was, what is Ramadan? Um, You know, what is it? Why does it shift in the calendar? What does it mean for the fall season? What does it mean for summer double, double time practices? Um, And, you know, you look at someone like Jason Fuller, who is such a, such a by the book ethical guy whose answer to everything is they're our athletes and we will support and accommodate them. And we just need to figure out what that means. Um, one anecdote that you referenced was the time that Kim uh, Wetlofer of Trinity Jubilee went to visit uh, the Somalis at their homes, getting to know them and becoming kind of a link between the families and the, and the schools and other parts of the community. Um, how important was this for the Somalis and, and you know, well, I think it's. I think it, his interaction with them is important for the Somalis. I think their interaction with him is important for the rest of the community. I think we constantly have to be making sure that we're looking at it from both sides. That it it isn't always about you know how does this help this this one part of the population, um, because to to look at the community, you need to look at at how it moves back and forth. Um, you know, Kim was Kim was Kim is Kim is just a great philanthropic, big-hearted human who also really loved sports. Um, you know, he was an All-American track star at Bates. Um, and he happened to be the director of the Trinity Jubilee Center, which which runs the town's soup kitchen and food pantry, as the, the wave of Somali Bantu began to arrive in Lewiston. Um, and he really paid attention. You know, he, he was taught. And I think that that's a really important attitude to have is, is to listen and to be willing to be taught um, what people's needs are and, and not to try to sort of shove them into a box that they don't want to be in. Um, so the Trinity Jubilee Center, it's just this incredible, you know, it's in a basement of a church. Um, it's this incredible organization that serves so many different aspects of the community. You know, the, the, the old white guys who are, are in the homeless shelter overnight and, and need a place, you know, to be during the day, they're there. You know, kids who have reduced or free lunch at school eat at Trinity in the summer. Um, kids who need air for their soccer ball go to Trinity. You know, Trinity is just this trusted oasis in the middle of what is the poorest neighborhood in Maine um, in downtown Lewiston. And Kim Wetlaufer is, is this guy who's, who's, you know, unassuming and laid back and, and willing to be taught. So when he's started to get, you know, he starts to get the invitations to, to come see where folks live, they, they trust him. Um, and I think that that's really important. And he becomes very invested in soccer. He's still very invested in soccer because that's what the kids were invested in. And, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to get interested in what they, they were interested in. So I think, um, you know, again, having these community organizations, the same is true on the Somali side of things. You know, so many of these these guys founded these organizations, the Somali Bantu Youth Association, which is now Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services. Um, you know, this really critical group that these young Somali men found to help kids, right, pairing youth soccer leagues with homework help. 
um, you know, come for homework help and then you can play soccer. And why do they want to do that? Because they want to make sure that these kids are getting what they need and staying in school and, and doing what they're there to do and, and make their parents proud and, and make their, their culture proud. Um, so I think it's really, you know, community organizers. I have, I have completely newfound respect, overwhelming respect for the role that, that folks like that play. Definitely, definitely. Doing the research for this project required more than just going to libraries. I think you wrote in the book that um, you refer to yourself as a soccer groupie in Maine. How <laughs> cooperative were the coaches and the athletic staff for letting you be like a you know a fly on the wall? Yeah, I mean, it, I became I became more intrusive than a fly on the wall. Um, you know, folks, I started, you know, the first two, my first two contact points, one was Abdi Kadir Negi, who was one of the founders of Somali, uh, the Somali Bantu Youth Association. And um, he was, I think he was my very first phone call. And and the second was to coach Mike McGraw. Um, and so coach, coach properly thought about it, what I was asking of him. And I started making the trips up there and, and, you know, slowly but surely it, it, it just, I had to stop asking permission. I really, I had that one, you know, sort of request. And then I remember asking Jason Fuller, the athletic director, you know, would you, can I be down on the bench? Is that okay? Um, and then, you know, it, it just kept progressing. You're in the locker room, you're in the middle of, uh, you're in the middle of the huddle, <laughs> you know, at halftime, um, I had this one moment, God, I think it was a postseason game against Camden Hills. It was so cold. I think it's the, the day that I shot the cover of the book. Um, and I'm walking off the field with the team. They're down by one um, at the half. And the keeper coach, the goalkeeper coach, looked at me and he said, if you'd told me a year ago you'd be out here with us on the field, I would have told you you were crazy. And I was thinking, wow, I didn't even think of that. I'm on the field. Um it was just, they were so generous and they were so forgiving and they were so patient and they were so willing to teach. And I mean that, you know, from coaches to school administrators, to players, to community members, to the community organizers, to the, the players' families, to the booster club. Um, I think that there's a general understanding that this is a really important story. Um, it's a tiny story. It's this impossibly local story. And yet it's an important story because it's an American story. Now, in doing this research, what did you learn um, that you didn't know before? About researching? No, 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 no. Well, well I guess what I meant is uh, about the research or about soccer or about maybe even yourself as a person or a writer. I found out that I'm a much better interviewer than I thought I was. Um, you know, I had certainly had conversations with people um, in terms of different, you know, different aspects of my career and different things that I was writing, but I wasn't, I hadn't, you know, there, I just hours and hours and hours and hours of transcripts for this. Um, Mike McGraw is a storyteller, which I'm really grateful for. And he remembers everything. I mean, he can reconstruct so many moments from 15 years ago or from last season. You know, he can tell me what he focused on in, in terms of a, a locker room speech or, you know, what a kid's nickname was in 2003. Um, so I was really grateful for that. I, I think that, that figuring out how to weave, you know, what, I think one of the things that I thought about much more seriously in terms of soccer, because I'd written, I'd written a lot about soccer. I'd been writing about soccer for CNN since the 2004 world, uh, 2014 world cup. Um, 
But I think that, that really appreciating the idea of teamwork and soccer and, and really wrapping my head around why it's called the beautiful game um, from so many different aspects, because the I'd, I'd never really seen it played the way that Lewiston plays it. Um, in terms of, in terms of sort of their ideology of togetherness, you know, their, their call before every game, Pomoja Ndugu, which is Swahili for together brothers. Um, and then the way they move, you know, just this unselfish play, they don't care who scores. They don't, you know, they, they're patient and they're, they're skilled and they're in sync and soccer really lends itself to that. Um, this story would have been a much different story, I think, if they played a different sport. Yeah, and they had the part in the book about the the throw in where the the one player had the uh, the over the you know the kick, ah, uh, the flip throw, the, the no the Very flip throw in the front handspring throw in. Yeah, these are special kids. These are these are madly talented special kids. Oh, I could just imagine uh, the reaction of the other team when they came up with a play like that. That had to be just stunning to them. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare to see on a high school field, um, and it's very rare to see on a high school field with the kind of precision uh, that Malid Abdo has when he does a front handspring flip throw in. One of the uh, courses you teach at the College of New Rochelle intrigued me. It's called the Rise and the Fall of the American Teenager. Um, are American teenagers better off now than their parents or grandparents, or are they facing a whole student, whole uh, new set of difficulties that the uh, previous generations didn't have to deal with? Well, we know that since, you know, I haven't taught that class in a while. And one of the reasons that I haven't is because it needs to be renovated um, for sort of this, the social media age. Um, we know that from Generation X on, you know, the no generation, you know, for, until Generation X, every generation was, was guaranteed to do better than their parents before them. That was sort of the American genealogy. Um, that your parents wanted you to do better. And, and that's not guaranteed anymore. Um, so I think that, you know, I think every generation has its own unique challenges. I'm, I'm really, I'm really loath to sort of ever say this generation has something tougher than that generation. Um, I think that it's different. You know, I think that if you look at teenagers who grew up in the industrial age, you know, who are factory workers and, you know, before child labor laws, uh, talking about teens who were growing up in the in the world in the interwar years or the depression you know and then and then looking at you know civil rights leaders that were youth um i think it's really hard i think that each each generation has its challenges i think it also has its its commonalities um but i think that you know it, it's it would be tough to say that that any one generation has has a tougher time of it than another and the uh, the change in administrations from Barack Obama to Donald Trump seem to send out new signals. Are you uh, are you seeing that kind of shift? And if so, does it concern you? Well, I'm 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 really heartened. Actually, I'm not concerned because I think that you know I I've, I've written my gosh two of my four books are about 1968, um, and you know 68 is sort of considered this pinpoint year of. Um, of, you know, agitation, youth agitation. And, you know, we're seeing some pretty miraculous 
political activism right now. We're seeing some very loud voices. Um, I think, you know, looking at things like the hashtag Me Too movement and looking at the hashtag Enough, looking at the Parkland teenagers rising up um, to take on the NRA, to take on Congress. I think looking at black teens with the, with the you know, arms up, don't shoot, which was sort of a precursor to this. Um, I think that, you know, and, and of course, isn't really getting sort of the foundational credit that it needs to, um, which, which of course is, is, you know, how that, that's a historical pattern as well. But I'm seeing a lot of youth voice out there. I mean, I, I think that that looking at these, these, you know, marches for our lives as they're calling them and the walkouts and, and what have you. Um, I think that one of the things that, that having a, having a, having a bad guy in office can do, um, is really instill action. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe the Obama years sort of taught teens how it could be and, and now they, they want to make it better. Very true. Uh, here's the part of the interview where I ask you, uh, what did I miss? Is there anything you'd like to add about the book that uh, we haven't talked about yet? Um, I think that the, the thing about the book, it's a soccer book. And, you know, if you're a soccer fan, I think it's a great book. I think it's, I think it's a great story. You can decide if it's a great book. I think that there's these, these kids are just rock star soccer players and, and need to be taken on that level um, as just being extraordinary practitioners of this game with, with just a thrilling masterful season um, that the book focuses on. Uh, but I also think that if you don't like soccer, this is such an important story. I think, you know, when I started writing it, the national discourse on, on immigration and on these, these certain countries that, that the president has now um, used a, a word that I can't say probably on your broadcast um, to describe the, you know, this is, it feels almost, I, I was hopeful that it would still be a relevant book when it finally came out, when I was finally done. It now feels sort of overwhelmingly relevant. Um, and I think that, I think that this story is, is hopefully, you know, one that folks can, can take a break from the rhetoric um, that is so dominant, it feels like sometimes, and, and find something to counter it with. Yeah, to me, it's sort of like 1968, because, um, to me, 1968 was kind of a bellwether year. Uh, I was a kid, and I remember how turbulent it was. Even as uh, an 11-year-old, I remember it all seemed so strange and so tense. And I kind of have that same sense about now. It's definitely a tense time. Well, this has been a very great and inter interesting interview, really interesting. And I know your time is viable, Amy. Uh, what uh, What's your next project, uh, other than you know running around with books and that sort of thing? Uh, I have a couple things mulling around in my head, but nothing, uh, nothing, nothing that, nothing that I could probably make cogent at this point. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ride this one out for a little bit longer, and then, uh, and then we will see. Well, thank you again, Amy, uh, for being on the show today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Sports podcast. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.